0: We're going to be in Luke chapter 9 today. I'm going to get my timer started. You guys always suffer under me not starting my timer. I hate to do that to the second service all the time. Believe it or not, I have a timer. Um, So we're going to be in Luke chapter 22 today, actually looking at um, a a point where we get to see the conflict that Christ is in uh, kind of brought front and Center and so so, just as you think about it, I think that well let me, let me set it up this way We have since he walked in Jerusalem, since he stepped into Jerusalem, walked into the temple, and began to preach and teach, we have been in a passage that has put Christ at the center of a conflict where, where the conflict has really been evident, and in many ways that 's kind of been uh, the undertone of many of the sermons that, that have been preached and taught through this perspective or through this series of passages, uh, but but the conflict has always existed. I think that that is contrary to how we typically perceive Jesus' work in ministry, though. I think, by and large, in our culture today, by and large, we view Jesus' work as charitable. We, we look at the aspect of the charitable work that Jesus Christ did, and that is absolutely right. The work he did is charitable. I mean, if you just consider He did for us what we couldn't do. That's charity, right? I mean, He did something for us on our behalf. We couldn't have accomplished it on our own. He did this work. So one perspective is certainly that it's charitable. But what we don't often think of, what we don't often consider, is that Jesus is is coming, His his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection is an offensive move. Like this is offense. This is not defense. This is not him trying to recover. This is him stepping into the timeline of our world and moving against the forces of darkness, the, the, the forces of evil, the, the, the realities of the enemy that stands opposed to him, that in many ways has, that, that war has been raging, not just in this last week, or not this week, but this scriptural Week, but has been raging since Genesis chapter 3. So when I, when I was first in the military, or my last duty station in the military, I was at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and we would get together and have these big division level events. The, the Army Division that's stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky is 101st Airborne Division. And we'd get together for these big, uh, big events, these big parades, and people would stand out and, uh, you know, and 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 tell the stories of the 101st Airborne Division on D-Day or the Battle of Normandy. And regardless of all the mistakes that we made, the, the 101st uh, played a major role in the victory that took place on D-Day and 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 the unfolding victory that that came from that. Now. They would tell the story as if they were the most important. They would tell the story as if they were the ones that got it right, and they were the ones that were critical to the, to the day. But the reality is, is they, along with a number of other forces, kind of sealed the fate of the German forces that day. That was the day we look back in history and we're able to see that from the events of D-Day comes the victory, becomes, comes the end of the war. That was the beginning of the end of the war. The German forces couldn't recuperate. And in spite of all the mistakes made that day, that was the day that they began to win the war. And in many ways, Jesus is entering into our timeline, entering into this world, being born by a virgin, putting on flesh, dwelling among us, living perfectly. Even moving towards this moment where he's going to be crucified, where he's going to suffer and die. Even moving towards this moment, this is D-Day. This is the beginning of the end for this spiritual war that we don't often Think about, the conflict is real, the conflict is raging, but it's coming to an end. And in the end, there's good news. And that good news is that Jesus will not falter, he, he will not fail, he wins. He is the victor. And really, in this passage today, we get to see that moment where, where it seems to me that that it's just being brought out one more time for us to see and to build in us hope and, and, and plans for the future and confidence as we look forward. It's a passage, I think, that, that, that many of the reasons why we, we have this passage recorded for, for us. But I don't want you to take my word for it. Uh, let's just walk through the passage, and I think you'll be able to see it. So we're going to be chapter 22, verses 1 through 13, or 1 through 14. Begin reading in verse 1. Now the Feast of the Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Now let's just set the stage, okay? Just remember where we're at. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem at a very opportune time, at a very important time in Jewish history. It is Passover. It's one of the, one of the three festivals, one of the three holidays that all Jewish men were expected to come to the temple. So the city would have been packed with people. It was ma- a massive number of people coming into the city to celebrate Passover. So, so when Jesus comes in, the, the crowds are enormous. So let's, let's pick it back up. Now, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. They're looking for a way to put him to death, but they can't act because they're afraid. It goes on verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him. And to them, and, and they were glad, betray him to them, and they were glad. Of course they were. They were glad. They celebrated. You know, they're happy. One of his own is coming to us and going to help us out. They were glad and agreed to give him Money, So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Judas sought to betray Jesus to the chief priests and the scribes, the elders, the leaders of the Jews in the absence of a crowd because they were afraid of the crowd. So let's just let's think about this. Here we go. I mean, the, 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 the reality is that there's these chief priests and these scribes who want to put Jesus to death. This isn't the first time we hear of the conflict between him and the Jewish leaders. This isn't the first time that it's become evident. It's always been evident as we've been studying through Luke. Even all the way back, you go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 4, where where we see him beginning a public ministry after his... After his time in the desert, after, after his temptation by, by the devil, he's in, he's in his own hometown in Nazareth. In the synagogue on a Sabbath day, as was his practice, and he stands up, they invite him to read, he stands up and he reads from Isaiah, and he says, today you've seen this prophecy fulfilled. Saying, I'm the one, I'm the one that has been being told to you was coming, I'm the one. And they didn't like that. And they rejected him. And in fact, it tells us that they ran him out of the synagogue, and they brought him to the peak of a hill and tried to hill not heal. They brought him to the top of a hill and tried to throw him off a cliff. Already the conflict is real, the conflict is happening. His reputation, the stories of his powerful miracles, his his uh, the authoritative teaching, this his life and ministry had become it was preceding him. He wasn't having to go places to meet people and teach them and work miracles. People were coming to him. They were coming from all over Israel, it says. They were coming to him uh, from all over the region. And when they came, they would, they would begin to ask questions. And they would watch what he was doing. And they didn't always like it. In fact, he was doing things that only God should be doing. In fact, in one story, the story of the paralytic, where he's, he's, he, he sees this man being lowered down through the roof. And he's, he looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, oh, what is he doing? Only God can forgive sins. He's blaspheming. So they begin to reject him. I mean, it's right to reject a blasphemer, right? I mean, it's the right thing to do. He cannot be doing this. And in their rejection, the leader's rejection, the hope was, I think, as they rejected him, that Israel would follow suit, that the, that the people would follow suit. But they didn't follow suit. In fact, the masses continued to come to him. Everywhere he went, there was a crowd. Everywhere he went, people were pressing in around him. And so, their rejection was quickly followed by seeking to discredit him altogether. So they couldn't deny his miracles. When you think about this, when when you when if you know a blind person and all of a sudden you, somebody somebody says "see" and all, they see, well, you can't deny that something just happened, right? Like that's crazy. He was blind, and now he sees. When a lame person is laying on the ground, cannot walk, and, and Jesus walks up and touches him, and, and suddenly he can get up and walk, well, you can't deny that miracle. When a leper is covered with leprosy, and Jesus touches him, and he's cleansed, you can't deny that, that this powerful miracle just happened. So rather than deny him, they begin to seek to discredit him, and they begin to attack the source of his power. So they had begun rejecting him that, that led to the, to the discrediting, and they began to say that the source of his power was the devil. This is from the enemy. This is from Satan himself. We do not need to follow after this man. We, we can't deny he's doing powerful things, but it's from the devil. And again, their intent. I, I think the intent was right. If he's working power, the miracles by the power of the devil, that's not somebody you should follow. What they were missing was the fact that he actually was who he said he was. They thought that they could get the masses of people to quit following him. and, And in some way, they thought they were saving these people. To the point where he enters into Jerusalem and he's not just received as a prophet. Remember, this remember, he's entering into Jerusalem at the time of Passover. The crowds were massive. I mean, there's estimates of how much the crowd would swell, or the, or the population of Jerusalem would swell at the time of Passover. And no, nobody really knows. Some, some are hundreds of thousands, some are a million. We, we don't really know how big the crowds would be. But they were massive from all over Jerusalem, people coming. And here they are seeking to do the best thing they know to do. This guy must be a heretic. He's a blasphemer. He must not be followed. And so when the people begin laying their cloaks down on the ground and crying out, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of David, they're like, oh, you got to shut him up. You can't let him worship you like this. And Jesus says, no, you shut up. He didn't say exactly like that. Like, that's my version, right? You be quiet. If they don't praise me, if they don't worship in this way, then the rocks will cry out. And then he walks right into the center of power, the temple. And he teaches, and he teaches in such a way that it discredits them, that it demonstrates their hypocrisy and their failure to know the God that sent him. The very God they thought they were defending is the very God that they stood in opposition against. And so their rejection and their seeking to discredit turns not just to a mere rejection. They want to kill him. They want to be rid of him altogether. Get him off the face of the earth. But in, in what they believed, in what they, what they wanted, there was one thing they wanted more. Their reputation, the skin of their neck. They couldn't act because they were afraid. The one thing that outweighed their desire to kill Jesus was fear of the people. They believed what they were doing. I think they believed it was right. But they were so afraid of the people that they would not lose standing. That they wouldn't go out on a limb for what they believed. And so they were seeking a way to kill him. But they couldn't because they were cowards. And then the big surprise The one surprise really in this passage is Judas, one of the 12. There's only 11 people in the world that had a closer relationship to Jesus than Judas. There's only 11 people that saw him closer and more intimately than Judas. This was a man that was on the inside. It was a man who was one of the first sent out with the message of the good news of the gospel. It was a man who was given authority and power to heal heal people and cast out demons. I don't guess he was healing demons. He was healing people and casting out demons. And we have no reason to believe that he wasn't doing it because the record says that they all went and did it. He had a taste, a, a perspective. He had, a, he had an insight into things that, man, we pay money for, I think. Like, we, you, you think it sometimes. I'm, not, I'm, I'm certainly not the only one that's thought this. That If I just saw Jesus walking like these men walk, I mean, I think, I think I'd be even more certain. I think I'd be even more confident. If, if I could see Jesus like they saw Jesus, man, that would be amazing. But here's Judas. And the truth comes out about Judas. He's a traitor. He's not really who he said he was. He's not really what he's presented himself to be. And he conspires with the Jewish leaders to to hand over Jesus and send him away from the crowds of people. And the text says that they were glad that he showed up. Can you imagine what it felt like in that room when he walks into the room with the chief priests and the scribes, And here comes Judas, I want to help you out. I want to be, I want to make sure that you're able to get Jesus. I mean, I don't, I'm not much of a strategist. It's not like I play a lot of chess or I I, I was terrible at risk, but I'm imagining that that felt like to to them, the nail in the coffin of Christ. They think they have it. They think D-Day is theirs. We got one of his own. We got a spy in the camp. This guy is going to help us do the very thing that we've longed to do. And the question inevitably comes, the question always comes, well, why in the world would Judas do this? Some point out the money. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver, we know from the Gospels. 30 pieces of silver. And I don't know if this, I mean, I didn't live during this time, I don't know if this is exactly true, but one of the commentators I read from pointed out that this 30 pieces of silver was the the price for a slave in that day. Like Judas thought so little of Jesus that he was willing to accept 30 pieces of silver, the same as you would pay for a slave. If that's true, he didn't think much of Jesus at all, regardless of the fact that he'd been so close to him. Some th- say it's about the money. That he was the one holding the, the bag of money, and when the when the woman that when the prostitute came and and poured the alabaster broke the alabaster jar over Jesus and, and and anointed him and loved on him, he was all he could think about was the money. Must have been about the money, they say. Others would hold to a tradition that has been raised up over the years, and we don't know if this is true. I think it surfaced somewhere in the first, second, or third century, or the second or third century. Um, that there's this tradition that that Judas was actually acting and doing this because he thought it would force Jesus' hand. Some people would say that Judas really believed that Jesus was going to be the king, but Judas didn't like the plan Jesus had, and so he went in and he conspired with the Jews because he believed that once the Jews began their process of trying to kill him, he would step out and take his rightful place as king. We don't know if that's true. There's nothing in the scripture about that. There's nothing in the text that would lend itself to that, but that's that's a theory. We, We really don't know why Judas did what he did. But we can see in his actions that Jesus wasn't who we see Jesus to be to Judas. Judas obviously didn't love him. Obviously didn't have a concern for him. But what we do know is that he wasn't acting alone. In fact, the text tells us explicitly that Satan entered into Judas. Now again, there's a different, couple of different perspectives. There's a lot of things we don't know about this passage. A couple of different perspectives. One is that, that, um, Jude, that, that Satan didn't possess him fully, but that he was influencing him. That he's kind of whispering lies into his ear. Jesus needs to be caught. Jesus needs to be dealt with. He's dangerous. He's not who he says he is. You don't listen to him anymore. He's a liar. And these thoughts you're having, they're the truth. So he's influencing Judas in some way. Some, maybe similar even to the serpent entering into the garden and telling Adam and Eve, hey, look at this fruit. It's really good. It's not bad. It's good. And, and by the way, God said you're created in his image, but If you eat this, you'll be even more like him. It's possible that Satan was just deceiving Judas, that Judas was so so darkened in his understanding, that Judas was so lost in the way he saw things that he was easily deceived and influenced by the enemy, such that he got up and listened to it and and went and conspired with the enemy. Others think that he was fully possessed. When they read this, they hear when when it says that he entered into Judas and Judas just all of a sudden was possessed by Satan and went to town. Satan just took hold of him and, and, and led him to do things that were traitorous in nature. Well, what's interesting about this whole thing is, if that's, if that's true, Judas obviously wasn't, he wasn't as close to Jesus as we thought he would have been. and He's not been regenerate because he who's in us is greater than he who's in the world. But however it falls out, Judas is still held responsible. In fact, as the passage unfolds, the story we're going to read next week, the the dinner and the supper that Jesus is going to celebrate with his disciples, Jesus actually says at the end of it it in verse 21, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. He knows Judas is a betrayer. And not just does he know Judas is a betrayer, but in Matthew's account of this same event, Matthew says, Woe to him! In in verse twenty three, or, or I'm sorry, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. In verse twenty two, but but Matthew adds also, it's better for him if he'd never been born. Judas is still held responsible, regardless of whether whether Satan came in and possessed him or was just whispering lies in his ear. In either case, Judas is still held responsible. Judas has a part to play in this process, alongside traitor, or, or I'm sorry, alongside. Uh, Chief priests and scribes who should have known Jesus but rejected him. But he's not acting alone. See, it wasn't a solo mission. Satan was involved. And that shouldn't surprise us either. Satan was involved at every point. The conflict didn't begin when Jesus entered Jerusalem. The conflict has been raging since Genesis chapter 3. Since the fall, since, 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 since the serpent entered the garden. And, and, and we're not even told how it began before that. Like, that's the first place we see it being unveiled. Satan has been working to unseat Jesus, to overthrow Jesus, to, to defeat Jesus since Jesus began. In fact, as Jesus enters into ministry, he's baptized, God affirms him as his son, the Holy Spirit leads him into the desert for 40 days to be tempted. And Satan shows up and he tempts him. And Jesus does what Adam and Eve didn't do, couldn't do, I guess. And, and he withstands. And every lie that's told, he speaks truth. And every manipulation he sees through, he seeks to see his father glorified more than anything else. And Satan in this moment is defeated. And we see it happen. Luke chapter 4 verse 13 tells us and when the devil had ended every temptation, when he had tempted him in every way he was going to and Jesus didn't fall, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him. He departed from Jesus until an opportune time. And here we are at an opportune time. What a great time to unseat Jesus in front of the whole of Jerusalem, in front of the whole of Israel, as they are gathering for the Passover. And these chief priests and these scribes have learned to hate Jesus, despise Jesus, want nothing more than to kill Jesus. And here is Judas. One who's been with Jesus, one who's known Jesus, who's seen Jesus, and in some way doubts Jesus, and is willing to turn against Jesus. Jesus, you can only imagine that this is a moment that these people were celebrating as if they were going to succeed. But as much as that con- conspiracy, as much as that murderous conspiracy was being waged that day, and that plan was unfolding that day, that's just half of the story. That's just one plan that was at work that day. There's only, that's only one side of the story. You see, Jesus had plans of his own, and we'll pick it up in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So somewhere along the way in this process, Judas is conspiring and he's looking for an opportune time to come and and, and find Jesus alone apart from the crowds. And then the actual day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, And the apostles with him. Into verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You see, they had a plan. The conspirators had a plan. They thought they were going to figure it out. They thought they were going to find him. They thought they were going to be able to to seize him apart from the crowds. But Jesus had a plan too. And his plan wasn't going to be trumped by their plan. And we see it kind of unfolding at the end of that in verse 15. I had a desire to eat this. I've been looking forward to this. Nothing was going to keep me from eating this Passover with you before I suffer. I know that's coming, but nothing's going to stop this moment, this time for us, this intimate moment in this upper room where there's going to be great teaching, important teaching take place. I mean, you think about what we have in the gospel accounts of what took place in that upper room. Massive, massive amounts of Jesus preparing his disciples for his crucifixion. John his most, most intentionally and most intently looks at it. I mean, almost half of John is, is time in the upper room and, and preparing for the crucifixion. There's a ton of information. He gives just a glimpse of Jesus' life and his ministry, but then he shows us in clear detail what was happening in that upper room. Luke does the same thing. He, The the journey from from Galilee back into Jerusalem, we just get snippets. But it is slowed down so that we can see the detail of this moment of this work. He wants us to understand that this is not to be missed. Jesus has plans of his own and he is going to accomplish these plans. And that that brings us to the big idea here. The, 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 The thought I think that I'd like for you to walk away with, this is good news. And the good news is that though men and devils may conspire against Jesus, they may, may, they may make their plans, they may have their ideas about what they're going to be able to do against Jesus, none can prevent his plans from being accomplished. Jesus will succeed in all he sets out to do. Jesus will do all that he plans to do. There's nothing that can stop him. There is none that can stand in opposition to Jesus. The Jewish leaders are going to find this out. They're going to find it out the hard way. They're going to find out that even in this moment where they think they're winning, they cannot stand in opposition to Jesus. See, there was nothing they could do. Just like that moment in the synagogue in Nazareth when he speaks the gospel, when he speaks the truth and talks about the prophecy that's been fulfilled. You can go back and read about it in Luke chapter 4. And they push him to the top of a hill and they're going to throw him off a cliff. He passes right through them. He's not throwing elbows and right crosses and knocking people over. It just says he passes right through them. They are not powerful enough to keep him. These plans that these Jewish leaders, it's the same thing. He's just going to pass right through those plans. In fact, when you step back and take a look at what's happening in the entirety of the story, when you step back and get a, get, a, get a view of it from beginning to end, you begin to see that their plans are actually even being used by his plan to accomplish what he intends to do. He knew Judas was going to be there. He chose Judas for a purpose. He knew long before it had been prophesied that he would be betrayed. This was no surprise. He knew that he'd be rejected. He knew that he'd be despised. This is no surprise. They were all playing into his plan. The thing is, it's It's always been this way. No one can stand in opposition to him. No one can oppose him and and win. It's always been this way. God has always been God, and we have always been God's creation. It's never been any way but that. It's never been. We've always been lower than him. We've always had less power than him. We've always been subject to him. We were created in his image. But what that means for us is that we are no more powerful than our reflection is to us. You stand in front of the mirror, and your reflection has no power to do anything. To God, you are a reflection that has no power to stand before him and accomplish anything. And and, and truly, the Jewish leaders should have known this. I mean, they should have understood this. Their scriptures speak to this. The psalmist wrote, Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us rule ourselves. Let us be our own gods. Let us be our own people. We are not subject to him anymore. We're going to go our own way and do our own thing. And who's going to tell us any different? And We're still doing it. We develop sexual ethics that are our own. that They belong to us. Who's going to tell me I'm different than I see myself? Who's going to tell me who I can be and who I can't be? Who's going to tell me how I should live my life? I'm going to cast away their cords and their bonds. I'm going to rip them apart and send them away. I'm going to forget them. I'm going to do my own thing. This is his response in verse 4 of Psalm chapter 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. You're nothing more than a reflection of in a mirror in contrast to him and his power. I don't don't want to dismiss the fact that he loves, that he is merciful and he's gracious, but I want you to see just the, the distance. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds him in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying... As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. One day, everybody's going to answer to the reality that God has done this. And they can reject him. They can seek to go their own way. Not a lot of hope in that. In fact, the promise is wrath and fury but there's no one that can change the fact that he has set his king in Zion. See, we make our plans against him. I was thinking about this. It came to me in the first service. Much of the role of a pastor is to have corrective conversation. Every week, I I do it from up here. We do it as we counsel people in the church as we seek to serve them and love them. It's to have corrective conversations. It's not... Enjoyable. There's nothing a lot of. not a lot of fun in that. It's not. You know, we're not excited to do those things. But we don't do it because it's fun. We do it because we love people enough to have the conversation. Because what's there, what's offered against those who would continue in rejection and rebellion, is not very hopeful. Living out from under his authority, deciding, oh, I'm just going to live with this guy and we don't need marriage. It's not a big deal. God doesn't doesn't really own my money. Like, I can just spend my money on me. He doesn't own my time. I mean, I can kind of do what I want with my time. And as long as I show up at church on Sunday, that's enough for him. Oh, you know what? I don't even think that's, he doesn't even expect that. Like, he's just waiting for me to die so he can save me. He doesn't really care how I parent my kids, does he? I just wish they'd quit bugging me. Like, I just wish they'd leave me alone so I could continue to live my life. Well, I'm not going to say that out loud because people would think I'm a jerk. Man, this is hard being a parent. I just, just wish they'd grow up and get out, leave me alone. You know, Jesus, he doesn't need, I, I don't need to obey him. He's, he's not really Lord to me. But I expect he'll save me because I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I've never murdered anybody or, you know, not like I've ever been to jail. Those are all inventions of the devil. Those are all lies that he tells us. We cannot reject the Holy One, the Anointed One. We cannot see Him as Savior and not bow to Him as Lord and think that in some way He's going to save us when we die. We cannot reject Him in all of life and expect Him to be waiting there for us at the end. Listen, Jesus has, anoint- Jesus has been anointed by God the Father to be our prophet, priest, and priest and king. None, none, not even you can stand in opposition to that. And I love you enough to tell you that. To call you to repent, to trust in him, to give your life completely to him, to quit rebelling in any area. I mean, any amount of faith, even the most basic of faith in Christ will begin to see itself played out in your actions and activities. So just, just give up. Give in to him. Let him have you. Because nothing, nothing can be done against him. None can oppose him. None can succeed in outwitting Jesus. See, the next step in Jesus' plan, is not, it's not getting arrested. His next step is not suffering. The next step in his plan is sitting down with these men and enjoying the Passover. I've desired earnestly to seek this, to eat this with you. I've, I've desired it that in the original language. Says, I've desired it. I desire a desire of it. Like he's trying to emphatically say how much he's desired it, how much he wants it. And nothing is going to get in the way. Imagine Imagine, we find out Judas has, is looking for a chance. He's looking for a chance for Jesus to be alone so that, away from the crowd so that he can bring the Jewish leaders in. They can arrest him without a big scene because they are so afraid of the people. What's a better opportunity than for Jesus to be sitting alone, alone in a room with 12 guys eating a meal? They don't even have to go far to get him. Like, he's in the city. But Jesus, he knows better. He outwits them, and so when he sends Peter and John, he doesn't say, "Hey, you're going to go to this house. Here's the address, and here's you know, take a left on, I don't know, straight street. I don't, know, I don't know if they had a straight street there. Take take a left on the Via della Rosa. I don't know. Turn right at the temple. He's got an upper room. He doesn't give him directions like that. In fact, he says, "Hey, go find the guy that's carrying the water jar and follow him to his house. And when he goes in, talk to him and." and find out where his guest room is, and it's going to be ready. It's going to be furnished. And that's exactly what happened. He gives them this cryptic speech to, to in cryptic set of instructions that, I mean, if they'd even thought about finding a guy with a water jar, that was like that's, they didn't do that. That was like woman's work. I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm not trying to be chauvinistic. That's just the way it was. And it's still that way in many of those cultures. I mean, you go to, we go to Senegal, and if we carry a bucket of water, if we carry a jug of water... That's a woman's work, and they laugh at us. Even the women laugh at us because that's women's work. What are you thinking? And so there was a point one year I was drawing water out of the well and put it up on my head. I spilled more water than I got back to the compound. There's a reason they didn't want me carrying the water because I was going to spill more of it than you'd be, be able to use it. But, but they just laugh. They think it's hilarious. So here is this guy in this culture doing something that's out of character altogether, carrying this jug of water, and you're going to find him. But not only did Peter and John not know exactly where they were going, neither did Judas. And since Judas couldn't know where they were going, neither would the chief priests and the elders. And Satan couldn't know either. Because as tough as he thinks he is, as powerful as he might be, he is not smarter than Jesus. He does not know all that there is to know. He cannot outwit jesus none can outwit jesus and again we should know this the scriptures that the the jews should have known this this should have been true to them and understandable and, and 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 obvious to them the prophet isaiah is just one of the places it says this for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the lord For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So you know what he's telling us? You're an image. That's it. You're a creation. I am the Lord. I am over you. I think bigger than you. I have broader, more expansive perspectives than you. How humbling is it to know that? Because I think I know so much. Ask my wife. <laughs> but I don't know at all. I'm not smarter than him, so why would I oppose him? I can't see beyond the, the next few moments. I mean, we can't even do a good job of predicting the weather as much as we know about that. There's all kinds of questions about this, about whether or not Jesus had 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 set it up in advance, like he'd gone and talked to this man and said, okay, I need you in here, and, and I need you to be carrying a jug of water. And that's absolutely possible. Jesus is strategic enough, forth thoughtful enough. He's a planner enough that he could have easily done that. Like he's laying out plans from the beginning before the foundation of the world, right? So I think he could figure out how to set a plan, to hook up some guys in the middle of the city and lead them to, I don't have any doubt of that. But I also know he's Jesus. (laughs) And he can know whatever he wants to know. So I don't have any doubt that he had enough knowledge to know that in that city was this man with this jar of water and he just needed to get his disciples there. Just go. It'll be ready. And I know it'll be ready because I'm Jesus. His ways, his thoughts, the things that he knows, higher, bigger, more expansive. He knows the beginning from the end. He he knows it. We cannot outwit him. We cannot come up with a better plan than him. If, if, If in some way our plans are in contradiction to his, we need to hear this. We need to know this. We can't come up with a better plan. There's not a better fruit, a better way to be more like him than his plan there's there's not a better way to get jesus worshiped than his plan there's not a better way to be his people than his plan we cannot outwit him so let's quit trying none can override or undermine jesus see we can't we can't oppose him we can't outwit him and we can't override him we can't override his authority we can't undermine his authority jesus has supreme authority There's no one that can step into this story and tell him to stop. Not even Satan, who enters into Judas, who's powerful, who should freak us out because he's more powerful than you and me, but doesn't have to freak us out because Jesus is more powerful than him. He cannot be overridden, and he cannot be undermined. Satan is nothing more than a lion on a leash. And again, again they should have known this. Their scriptures tell the story of Job. Job is, Job is not a story about suffering. If you go to read the book of Job and you think, I'm going to figure out suffering like this is, the, this is where I'm going to build my doctrine and my, my, my perspective of suffering, it's not going to be in Job unless it's connected to learning about the sovereignty of God. Job is more about the sovereignty of God than it is the suffering of man. Although it is a story about a man who learned the sovereignty of God through his suffering. And we know it's about the sovereignty of God because it starts off the story in the heavens where Satan walks into the, to, to the presence of God. And I, I, I don't know how you picture that, but he comes into the presence of God, into the assembly of God. And he says, hey, what's going on? I don't know if he said it like that. I don't know exactly how it went down. And God says, hey, what about my servant Job? It wasn't even Satan's idea. It wasn't even Satan's plan. It wasn't even Satan's desire. What about my servant Job? Satan's like, yeah. So, so, so Satan is given leeway to take everything from Job except for his life and his wife. And he may have wanted to give up his wife at one point, but God said no. So his life and his wife is all he got to keep. And he learns this lesson in the midst of suffering that God is sovereign. He cannot be overridden or undermined. And and we see that happen at the end of the book where, where God begins to speak. And he says to Job, stand up, pull your pants up, act like a man. And Job, I can only imagine, is freaking out. Where were you when I did these things? Where are you when I'm doing these things? And when Job turns and confesses, He says, Job chapter 42, verse 2 I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God cannot, Jesus cannot be overridden or undermined. He cannot be opposed and he cannot be outwitted. Jesus will be arrested. He will suffer. He knows it's coming, but it will come when he's ready for it to come. It will only come when he's done all that he plans to do. Jesus will be arrested. He will be tried. He will be crucified and he will be resurrected. That's all going to happen. But it will only happen when he allows it and is prepared for it to happen. In in the New International Commentary, New Testament, Joel Green is extremely helpful. And he says this, I appreciate this quote. Here we find immediate evidence that Jesus is himself an active agent in the events beginning to unfold. He is no helpless victim. See, Jesus didn't get arrested because they outwitted him or opposed him or undermined him or overrode him. Jesus got arrested because Jesus planned to get arrested. He is no helpless victim, but actually sets into motion a chain of events that will lead to his segregation from the crowds and thus to the very condition for which Judas was seeking. If Jesus didn't intend to be arrested, they never, they never would have gotten him. But he sets in motion a chain of events that will allow Judas to do exactly what he intends to do. In fact, there comes a moment in the midst of the supper that Jesus tells Judas, go, do it. It's time. Jesus, Jesus is arrested, tried, and crucified, not because evil won, but because there's always his plan. This is good news. It's good news because though men and devils conspire against Jesus, none can prevent his plan from being accomplished. Why? Why? Why, would he, why, why is that good news? Why, wouldn't it just be better if he had just won? Like, did he have to die? Did he, why is this good news? This is good news because we know that following his Passover is his exodus. Spoiler alert. His Passover leads to his exodus. It leads to the, not just his exodus, but our exodus. Exodus. In fact, if you think about how this flows and how this is pers- p- p- laid out and, and portrayed, Jesus is preparing for our Passover that leads to our exodus. In a supper that we're going to get to study next week and celebrate again every week together. He is preparing our Passover that leads to our Exodus. This exactly is what he was seeking to do. This is exactly what he was working out. And, and you don't, again, this is not some allegorical perspective that I'm drawing into the text and forcing upon the text. This is what Jesus had come to do. In Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 31, he's standing on the mountain of transfiguration. James, Peter, James, and John are with him, and they see him begin to glow. His his his, his, his changes in front of them, and his glory begins to shine. And while they're there and in, in just enjoying the presence of his glory, they see two men with him. Those two men turn out to be Moses and Elijah. It says, and behold, two men were talking with him and in verse 30. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. The language in, in English, we don't catch it. But, but the language speaks of his exodus. This is God at work bringing an exodus for all who would trust and follow him, no different than the Israelites finding themselves under the weight and oppression and, and slavery of Egypt. And Jesus or, or God gives the, the plagues and he shows the gods of Egypt to be defunct and powerless. And he comes and he says, okay, now this is what I want you to tell them to do, Moses. And Moses says, go slaughter the lamb, paint the, door, paint the blood on your doorpost. And when the, when the angel of death sees it, he will pass over you. Hence the name, pass over. He will pass over you. But the firstborn of everyone else is going to die. Not just people. Every, the firstborn male is going to die. Not just people, but animals. There was a, there was a cry of death, of mourning that resulted of that. It was horrendous. And Pharaoh has finally moved to the place that he's going to send them away. And when they send them away, they fill them up with riches. And they're like, yo, go, and go. take this with you, please leave. And after they're gone, he's like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. We need him back. And so they chase after them, and God, they come to the edge of the Red Sea, freaking out because they think they've been led to their death. And God, by his power, with his might, presses the water back and allows Israel to cross on dry ground. And as soon as they're out of the water, the water closes in on the army and it destroys the most powerful army of the day. Because their Passover led to their Exodus, and so does Jesus. This is not the end for him. He does not give in to the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion so that he can just die, he gives in to it so that he can rise so that he can rise and so that you and I can rise no one can oppose him no one can outwit him no one can override him or undermine him he is doing all that he has always planned to do this is good news <laughs> and because it's because he is one because he is one we know we We'll win. See, Jesus isn't going to his destruction. He is preparing for his victory and ours. Because Jesus wins, we may find reasons to grieve, and they're all around us. You experience them every day. You turn on your news if you've had a good few days and you forgot what it feels like to grieve. Turn on the news for a minute. Children being shot in our schools. It's horrendous gut-wrenching people for the sake of the color of their skin are treated less than it's horrific sexual promiscuity leading to sexual abuse and perversion everywhere we turn death The unnatural results of our fall into sin is death. We are dying. But because Jesus wins, we may find reasons to grieve, but our grief is accompanied with hope. Jesus will never falter. He will never fail. No matter how many nations rise against other nations, no no matter how much famine, pestilence, rejection, and persecution that we have to face until the end, Jesus said this has to happen. It has to happen. But in the end, He will return with power and glory, and He will take us to be with it. See, our, 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 our grief is accompanied with hope because His victory. Because Jesus wins, we have every reason to go about proclaiming the gospel because it can't fail. The number one reason I, I hear, and I, I think I feel it as much as anybody else does, but the number one reason I hear why we don't go out and be missionaries wherever we are. Go out proclaiming the gospel, making sure that everybody hears the gospel and how Jesus has died in their place for their sins. The number one thing I hear back from people is I don't have enough information. I'm afraid I'll get rejected. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I won't be able to answer all the questions. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. But listen the gospel doesn't need your charisma, it doesn't need your methodology, it doesn't need your knowledge. The gospel just needs to be unleashed and it holds the power of life and death. It will accomplish what God intends it to accomplish. And they figured this out. It was too late, but they figured this out in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 5, the church is growing and it's expanding and they're seeking to do everything they can to shut it down, to contain it. And so they're arresting the the apostles. They're putting them in prison and, and they're telling them to quit. And in the middle of it, somebody with wisdom stands up. It's like, oh, wait, I had an idea. Acts chapter 5, 38 through 42. So, in the present case, I tell you, speaking about what's going on in Jerusalem with the spread of the church, the, the, the growth of the gospel. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from those men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Go out and do what you can do by your own power. You go seek to do a degree, get a degree, and you can fail in that. Try to get an education. You could fail. Try to start a business. You could fail. go, Go out and do all the things that you want to do by your own power, and it will fail. Truth is, even if it succeeds at first, eventually it's going to fail. At some point, that clock stops ticking on it. If this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. I love this answer where they took this thing. They took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them. So you might be opposing God. You might be working against God. But hey, before you go, let's beat you. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the count- presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You know, I think at the bottom of our fears, this, this sentence, this, this verse probably speaks more true and we wanted to speak. I don't think we count it a joy to suffer dishonor for the name. So we don't want to be seen as a people that don't have knowledge. We don't want to be seen as a people who aren't, aren't acceptable to the world around us. We want to be seen as a people who we don't want to be rejected. We're fearful because we can't see the honor of suffering for the name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. See, as certain as they were of victory then, we can be certain of it today. Just unleash the power of the gospel. And if you're sitting in this room and you are saved and you know Jesus as your Savior, then you know enough to go and unleash the power of the gospel that it might do the work God plans it to do finally. Because Jesus wins, we will never find a circumstance that separates us from our reasons to sing. And I love this because in the book of Acts, we see them getting arrested and singing. We're told in in, in Ephesus, in the the book of the Ephesians, to to speak to one another in hymns and songs and spiritual songs. We're we're called to sing. And because Jesus wins, there's not going to be a season, there's not going to be a circumstance that separates us from our reason to sing. And as I wrote this, and this, this song began to, began to ring in my ears. It's a song we sing here, and I guess that's because I'm not musical, so I guess that's why it was ringing. But no guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Wow. From the moment that life is in me, before I even know life is in me, before I'm even consciously taking part, till final breath, Even the day of my death is known to him. He commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Nations rage, famines, pestilence, violence towards one another. No scheme of man, no rejection, no persecution, no scheme of the devil can remove me from the safety of his salvation. We have every reason to sing. We have every reason to celebrate and worship this Christ till he returns or calls me home. Here. Here. Wherever that here may be. Tomorrow morning when you're sitting at the desk, Walking around in your living room, in your neighborhood, in the places you inhabit during the week. Here, in the power of Christ, we stand. Every moment of every day till he returns or calls me home because no one can oppose him, no one can outwit him, no one can override him, and no one can undermine him. He wins. And because he wins, we win. Let's pray. Father God, you're gracious and good to us. The gospel is obviously something we do not deserve. It's obviously a great gift of grace, but would you move on us, your people. For those that are yours, Father, even with the weakest of faith, by your Spirit, will you guide us and lead us to this truth, to the reality of how we have hope and can endure because of you. That no one can undo you, no one can can undo the work that you've done in us, no one can take that from us. Give us confidence and courage. Father, where necessary, bring us conviction and discipline us as your children. Correct us as necessary. Where we ourselves oppose you, lead us in the path of righteousness. Lead us to repentance and greater faith. Father, if there's any in the room that have never trusted you, would you move on them and show them what's coming if they continue to reject you? And in the midst of that fear, Father, the fear of your wrath and the fear of your the fear of your fury. Father, will they find your mercy? Will they find you with an open hand saying that Jesus, Jesus has made this possible for you? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.